Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight we continue our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. The programs were recorded in the spring of 1992 at a conference organized by the Interculture Institute of Montreal. The conference was called Living with the Earth, and it brought together representatives of popular organizations from countries as diverse as India, Senegal, Bolivia, and Iran. They assembled in Orford, Quebec, for four grey days in early May to consider problems of ecological decline in a cultural rather than a technical perspective. At Rio de Janeiro, two months later, the world's leaders gathered at the Earth Summit would proclaim the need for sustainable development. At Orford, development was seen mainly as another name for the destruction of subsistence and the alienation of the lands, forests and waters on which the great non-modern rural majorities of the world continue to depend. Instead, defense against development and a true pluralism of cultural practices were seen as the conditions for sustainability. David Cayley was at the conference, where he recorded the interviews which make up this series. The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, by David Cayley. In 1987, the World Commission on Environment and Development, better known as the Brundtland Commission, entitled its report to the United Nations, Our Common Future. Five years later, as political leaders from around the world gathered at the Earth Summit, a British magazine called The Ecologist responded with a special issue called Whose Common Future? The two titles dramatized diametrically opposed visions. The Brundtland Commission's report speaks of global challenges and global responsibilities, of a new reality which must be managed, and of the political will which managing it will require. It speaks of a new type of development called sustainable development, capable of ushering in what the report calls a new era of economic growth without catastrophic ecological change. And it addresses itself to those ruling institutions with the unquestioned power to accomplish its vision of a secure, common future. Whose common future takes the opposite tack? It argues that development is the problem, not the solution, that it is wealth, not poverty, which grinds up the earth. The editors of The Ecologist describe development as a movement of enclosure by which common wealth is rendered into scarce resources subject to private exploitation. It happened in early modern Europe when common lands were transformed into commercial pastures, and it happens today when peasant lands in Africa are consolidated in order to produce export crops, or communally used forests in India or Malaysia are suddenly converted to timber resources. The idea of a common future on this account is a mystification, a way of disguising the irreconcilable difference between those who benefit from development and those who lose by it. The first program in this series concluded with an interview with Nick Hildyard, an editor of The Ecologist and one of the authors of Who's Common Future. He spoke of resistance to development in local communities around the world and of the ability of such communities to adapt and innovate when they are free from the pressures of imposed development. Tonight, I want to continue with a case in point. Bolivian geographer David Tuchschneider, 
whom you'll hear in a moment, is the director of ISBOL, an acronym for Historia Social Boliviana. He received his academic training in Canada, where he lived for a number of years, and he now works with the Aymara and Quechua people of the Bolivian Andes on the recovery and adaptation of traditional agricultural techniques. Our conversation began with his account of the origins of ISBOL. ISBOL was created in 1982 in order to pick up and systematize and promote the social movements that were undercurrent at the time in Bolivia, very strong social movements that had actually allowed democracy to take a hold of the country and had forced the military governments to go back into the barracks. There was something changing then, and they were able to detect this change from a kind of politics of the left to a kind of more ethnic-based politics, more a politics that would emphasize more the reaffirmation of culture, the revalorization, as we say, kind of an awkward word, mm-hmm. of traditional ancient knowledges and a desire to start from those knowledges towards the future. So anyway, Isbol since then has become um, kind of a center for the promotion and diffusion of native alternatives to development. That's what we call it. It basically means that we publish uh, as much as we can on the oral history of native peoples, testimonies, uh, direct accounts of myths, uh, stories. Um, we pick up what's being told because uh, the Aymara and the Quechua peoples of Bolivia, with which we work mostly, are uh, an oral people. And then we also think that a big problem in Bolivian history with social movements and with political parties on the left as well as on the right uh, has been that uh, there's been an incredible lack of scientific information on the two variables that make up a country, basically space and population. Uh, There's been a lack of information as to who this population was, I mean, what languages they spoke, what were their customs, their traditions, their cultures, their ideas, their their vision of the world, their Weltanschauung, whatever you want to call it. And an incredible ignorance of the space that is ecologically very complex. It's a tropical mountain country. It possesses um, ecosystems, environments that are unique to it. For example, it possesses an environment called the Puna, P-U-N-A, in which people grow crops at 4,000 meters of the sea level. And conditions of, like, for example, just to use a variable right out of my mind, uh, solar radiation, which is more like that at the moon than at the sea level. A strange environment by, if you look at it through the eyes of the Western imaginary. Like, if you think, what is a forest, then you close your eyes and think of what is a forest, and then you have this idea of, whatever, pine trees and right. Well, if you go to the Andes, especially to Bolivia, which is the heart of the Andes, you will find environments that you cannot comprehend through that kind of imagination. You have to make a shift. It's not that they're different in quantity, that they're less hot or less cold or more humid or less humid. It's that they're qualitatively different. And you're mentioning this because the Bolivian elite also have the European... That being the problem, Uh, being the elites, meaning the people who speak Spanish uh, and English or French, uh, very well educated in foreign universities, uh, basically the people who generate ideology and culture, 
culture in the sense of high culture, they have this this consciousness, which is very alienated, alienated in the true sense of the word, and not having real roots on the reality of the country. So a big effort of, of our, you know, in, in our publishing uh, lines, uh, we have several editorial lines, one would be this one, was to bring to the attention of the people who were generating ideology or generating public policy, people who are working in non-governmental organizations as well as in banks and development offices and ministries, a consciousness that they were dealing not only with the people who thought differently and had their own logic and their own culture, but also who inhabited a space in which you could not translate without change recipes from the North. And the North is a big term, and I kind of dislike its use, but, for example, you, ca you cannot translate an agricultural technology that has been developed at sea level, mid-latitude country, to a space that is 4,000 meters of the sea level and is in the tropics, right? I mean, it seems common sense, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, common sense seems to be the less common of all senses sometimes. And so we kind of pointed at that. And I think that since then we've, we've been quite successful in, in that. The true alternative, the, the appropriate techniques, agricultural techniques for a region for a country like Bolivia that has such a complex ecology, are the ones that have evolved in this ten, sorry, in this eight thousand year experiment with agriculture, which is in the end civilization. And these ecologies range from terrace systems to to raised fields to a number of other technologies that you wouldn't be able to identify that I would have to describe, but anyway, that are part of an array of techniques developed through m millennia of of wisdom. Uh, dealing with one particular environment, as then, which is the Indian environment, which is characterized by having the largest variety of ecosystems per unit area in the world, with the greatest instability, climatic instability. And these are uh, techniques, agricultural techniques, designed to attenuate the, the, those factors. So what we're now doing... Uh, Instability means unpredictability? Unpredictability, yeah. Uh, for example, you, you don't know what the weather's going to be like next year. It's very hard what the weather is. It's hard to know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> That's how bad it is. For example, at 3,600 meters of the sea level, you get frost 80 nights of every year. And you may get freak frosts and, you know, in the middle of summer. The, d the difference is that you have in temperature between summer and winter in a, in a mid-latitude country like Canada, you have in the Andes from morning till night. So that incredible range of temperatures, of, of course, forces you to adopt a different technological mindset. Have inherited techniques been abandoned under pressure to modernize? Or how has that gone? Well, one of the themes of this conference is the problems with development. Uh, I certainly think there are big problems with, with the conception of development that we hold so dear today. But I think that we, we need to have a little bit more of a historical perspective. And uh, a lot of the discussions on development miss on this. And I think they'll fail to, to come up with alternative solutions if they keep on doing so. You see, the problem with the state of society and economy in the Andes is, is that it was invaded in 1532. 
And uh, since then, what we've had is a series of governments, if you want, but a series of states, really, that have dedicated themselves to imposing their own wisdom of what's right. And generally, their wisdom has been alien to the culture and to the nature of, of the place. For the Spaniards, the you know wealth was basically mineral wealth. So they reoriented the whole population of the Andes into forced labor in the mines. Of course, before that, with the conquest, the population had an incredible collapse. In the coast, nine out of ten people died. And in the, in the highlands, we have, according to the estimates, three out of eight or four out of eight. So a major catastrophe, a holocaust. And after that, you have whatever surviving population is rearranged to, to exploit the mines, to export gold or silver to, to Spain, right? After that, you, the republics come, the, the dream of, of a nation-state executed by the, or put into practice, rather, by, by the elites that replace the colonial elites. And basically, there you have a dream of progress. It's a white man's dream. It's, it's when first we begin to see that the solutions are in the future and then there are ways of arriving there and that we have a problem to begin with and we have a solution in the end. And then you have a series of policies put into practice that actually have really nothing to do with this. For example, peasants are made into pawns in, in haciendas. And again, there's a reinforcement of mining uh, economy. But anyway, accompanying all this, you have, for example, a, a, a big effort at evangelizing the Indians. Now, when you evangelize a people, when you change their mind, when you change the way they see God, religion, then you're really attacking what's most the center of thought. And in the Andes, this was worse because while the Spaniards thought they were burning these witches and like devil worshippers, I mean, because the way the Andean society worked, it was that the priests, the um, the people who were in charge of the religious stuff, according to the Spaniards, were also the engineers. They were also the agriculturalists. I mean, they were the people who knew how the stars moved. They, they knew the ritual cycles because the ritual cycles were associated with agriculture. They knew how to build bridges. In other words, thinking that they were destroying the pagan religion, the Spaniards really destroyed Indigenous the indigenous no scientific knowledge of the world, which was closely associated with a pagan view of the world. So what you have is more than 450 years of constant negation of the validity, the value, the worth of native culture. I mean, at the beginning, the Spaniards came and told them, you're pagans, you don't pray to the right god. Then uh, in the republics, the, they told them, well, you're, you're ignorant Indians. You don't even know uh, how to produce for the market. And now with development and co international cooperation, or a lot of it, not all of it, of course, we can't put everything in the same bag, uh, there is kind of a, an insistence on, of, on that. You know, agricultural processes go, they, they say, hey, you're, you're, you're harvesting all, you know, 20 varieties of potatoes in a pot. That's really stupid. You know, I mean, yeah, it's like you have to put one variety. It has to be a hybrid variety that needs pesticides and fertilizers. That so happens it tastes, it tastes so bad that native Indian peasants give it to the pigs to eat because they won't eat it themselves. And also you cannot put one variety in a plot because your climatic conditions are so variable 
that if you get a frost, it will kill it all. It won't kill only the least resistant one. So the environment itself doesn't allow for that. 20 varieties was a real example. Oh, actually, in one study that uh, some friends from a Peruvian institution called Pratec made, they found 90 varieties of potatoes in one plot. What would be some of the characteristics that would cause people to cultivate so many varieties? In most agricultures in the world, out of the whole range of varieties, peasants will choose. So you, you want to get a better potato crop, right? So you start choosing your biggest potatoes for seed. That is the logic of maximizing production. That makes sense in an ecosystem in which you, can, you have minimal control over the basic variables that affect the crop. But it doesn't make sense when what you have to do is you have to spread your production in as many plots as possible, each one slightly different. One plot may have an orientation that is north-north, another north-east, another one that is south-south, uh, another one is flat, another one is inclined, another one whatever. And then you know that some varieties like it there. And then, of course, you make a reading of the stars and of the skies, and you say, well, maybe this year we'll have early frost. And, and therefore, then you say, okay, early frost, then I'll plant bitter potatoes here, which are more resistant, at triploid, which is more resistant. You plant bitter potatoes there because you've guessed from all the information that you derive from stars in the sky that you may get early frost. So you make sure that on the average, because the environment is probabilistic, you make sure that on the average you get a satisfactory harvest. And that is one of the strategies. The second strategy that Andean peoples always had was to send people to other ecosystems. Like if you live in the highlands, then you want to have relatives in the valleys, and you want to have relatives on the coast, and you want to have relatives on the edge of the jungle, because that way you'll get access through your relatives to fish from the coast, to products from the valleys, and to products from the jungle. And therefore, in all Andean history, you had these family arrangements that covered literally from the coast to the jungle, which are like thousands of kilometers, and they developed gradually into nations that articulated uh, already more formal systems of having colonies in, in every ecological level, and into the Inca state, which systematized that. And then the Spaniards came, and instead of systematizing it, they, they just cut it down into little pieces. So what you have now is that people, instead of having access to the wide variety of e ecosystems that exist in the Andes, people have access only to their own ecosystem. And that is the development of underdevelopment. That's why people are poor. And people are poor as a result of that process, not because they are originally poor. So instead of eating fish and fruit and potatoes... I live on potatoes. That's right. And if you want fruit and fish, you have to buy it. But to buy it, you have to sell your potatoes. And your potatoes get potatoes in the market because they're worth nothing. Because the other thing is that since th the basis of the colonial state was forced labor, the cost of labor ever since is very low. And therefore, the cost of the products of that labor, Indian labor, are not... I mean, if, if you look at a study of... Um, of prices of agricultural products in Bolivia, not one covers the cost of production, except for coca. Because coca, it so happens, has a foreign market. 
and it's the only Bolivian product that has a comparative advantage, if we want to talk about it in, in the language of economics, in the world market. And that's why coca production is advancing so fast at the expense of the rest. So what is going on now in the way of restoring these relationships, restoring forms of agriculture? What are the possibilities in that regard and what's happening? I think the most interesting possibilities are happening in the communities or groups of communities that have undergone direct experience with development projects. Development is a mental thing. Underdevelopment is, is a mental thing. And we are convinced, many peasants are convinced, that it's the application of these new technologies, fertilizer, pests, and all of those things, that are going to solve their problems. And it's until they, exper they experiment with them, as, as they have in many communities, and until they see it fails, only then are they going back to their own old knowledge, to consulting with old people and saying, well, maybe you were right. You know, maybe we have to start from what we have. And we don't need necessarily to replace everything and start anew. There's very little that finance organizations can do about this because most of these communities, what they're doing is they're retiring. They're doing what I call the constructive disengagement at the local level. Instead of comparing their systems to a development system, instead of seeing themselves in function of that, what they're doing is they're turning their side inwards their view inwards, they're looking at themselves and they're trying to start from their own. And there is something really beautiful when you go to the communities that are doing this, that you can smell. They haven't lost the dignity that you lose when you live with your hand extended, waiting for the technical advisor from abroad, from the city, when you wait for the, the better seat, when you wait for the whatever developmental input are gonna, is going to come from, when ev all the knowledge that is right is outside and it's not yours, you become poor because you believe you're nothing, because everything that is worth is outside. So can you give an example of some way in which agriculture is being restored or w in which relationships between ecological zones are being restored? The most interesting example uh, I can think of at this moment in Bolivia is uh, this group of communities in a place called Provincia Camacho, which formed, if I'm not wrong, 83 or 82. They created their own NGO. And it was a, an NGO created to provide a technical education to their young ones. And it was a technical education in the agricultural techniques and the most modern agricultural techniques, and these young people who were from the communities were going to go out of their technical school and they were going to teach their parents how to do things right. And effectively, three years later, after good training in, in, in the agronomic model of, of mid-latitude flat countries, these kids came out and they tried everything. And it's amazing. I mean, they were very ingenious in their application of, of what they'd learned. They tried all kinds of new crops. None of them worked. None of them were resistant to the ecological conditions of the area. They tried um, greenhouses. At one point they tried to, because the animals, they, they thought they didn't get enough good food, animals meaning cows and sheep, and they thought there, there should be a better way of uh, actually growing pastures 
to better the ecological conditions. I mean, it was their alienation was such that they didn't think maybe cows and sheep shouldn't belong in this landscape, right? Which is native to the Lama and the Alpaca and the Vicuña. That failed, of course, because you're going to change the pasture of the whole region. I mean, that is too much of an undertaking. And finally, they kind of gave up. At one point, they looked for some technical advice. They came to us, and uh, we went there, and we were astounded at what we saw, which was basically one of the, a magnificent system of pre-Inca terraces that covered all the valley zone in, in the province and was completely abandoned. And we did a, a, a little bit of research and found out that w they had been abandoned between 200 and 250 years ago for reasons that we still don't understand, but they were definitely not ecological or climatical. And we think they were abandoned because they required a level of organization and a level of population that, that couldn't be met at the time. So what we said is, well, this is your wealth. Here is where you, you can start. And now the communities are, you know, they're getting together, they're organizing, there's this incredible process, you know, there's this, this sense of boiling, this sense of um, of direction. And now the these 80 communities are beginning to organize not only themselves, but also the, uh, the other 100 communities of the province to undertake the reconstruction of these terraces, the experimentation with crops in them, and the full-fledged production in this traditional system. David Tuckschneider calls what is going on in Bolivia's Provincia Camacho a boiling. And he thinks this is what can happen anywhere, that the alien categories of development are set aside and the knowledge proper to that people and that place allowed to reemerge. I'm kind of tired, to be honest, with the whole development thing. And I'm tired because I think it's not my problem. The term was invented by Truman. Its operational definition after World War II was basically to create the conditions for democracy, democracy being understood as the freedom to do business. Then, you know, there were a lot of problems with development, and then all these adjectives started to be added to development, you know, and now we have sustainable development. Well, sustainable development is another attempt to fix the problems that development has caused, and I don't think such a thing as sustainable development is possible. I think it's an oxymoron. I think that is the notion of development is alien culturally to most of the peoples of the world because it's a notion that relies on linear time, whereas most of the cultures of the world don't have, at base, they don't partake of conceptions of linear time. Definitely there is a sense in which cultures change, societies change, but not necessarily along the, the production of more and more and more goods and the consumption of more and more and more goods and the attainment of a better life in the future materially. I mean, I, I don't think that is an objective that is viable for the world. And I think something has to change at that level. As far as the views represented in the Congress, I think that there is basic agreement on that, which I am surprised, you know. Uh, I think it's, it's a fantastic sign that people are finally beginning to say, hey, maybe this doesn't really work. Uh, what we have to see now is effective changes. Those effective changes have to occur at the level, unfortunately, at the level of the distribution of power in the world. And they are not, the distribution of power in the world is not going to be modified by a conference and is not going to be modified by a number of papers presented by a bunch of marginal intellectuals, right? But I think that the changes that we can affect in the world, 
grassroots can affect on the world as well in Canada as well as in, in Bolivia or the Philippines or whatever are by creating spaces of self-determination, of autonomy, not depending on your food on a multinational company that brings it from Thailand. Self-reliance, I think, is the key word. And the old anarchist saying that you say, you know, think globally and act locally, I think that is a good guide for action in the future. When you speak about the fact that most cultures of the world don't accept linear time, most cultures of the world have been in prolonged contact now with Western ways of thinking and acting. Mm -hmm. They've been penetrated irreversibly, it seems, by market relations. Mm -hmm. Is it still true what you say? Mm. Let's take first the question of market relations. Market relations per se are not wrong. What's wrong is when a whole society becomes subordinated to market relations. So I wouldn't have a problem with the market as long as it's set within its context and its limits. I think it's a necessary thing for existence. It's necessary for allocating goods on a certain level. On, on the fact of Western penetration of, of third world societies, and that's an undeniable fact. I don't think that's a problem. I don't think Western society is bad per se. I mean, I really will. And s some people have suggested that. And I think that's wrong. I think that Western society is out of control. Uh, I think that the economic system that this society has created is, is a machine that is eating up our environment and is, it's, it's, is destroying our world. And I think it has to be stopped. But in the third world, you have, for example, the earliest countries that were colonized by Europe were the Latin American countries. First, you have the conquest of the Caribbean, then of Mexico, then of the Andes. In 1590, when the first university was being created in what is today Bolivia, there weren't even Europeans in what is today Canada, right? But the issue of Western influence has to be understood in terms of how was that influence assimilated in the, in the country that received it. And this will differ throughout the world. I'm sure there are places that, you know, we can only think of as Western. I mean, Argentina is certainly a Western country, even though it's a poor one. But in the case that I know, well, which is the in, in the Indian case, in Bolivia and Peru particularly, uh, we see that all the Western influences were somehow didn't just mix with the native culture, and you didn't get a hybrid, like a, a syncrasis, a syncrasis, as they call it in, in anthropology. What you got is a very specific form in which the native matrix allowed the native culture to assimilate the culture of the invader into itself. And what today we call as mest a mestizo culture in these two countries is really an Indian culture that has assimilated the matrix of the invaders. For example, you have that Indians pray to their own deities, they pray to their mountains, they pray to the sun, to the moon, and they also pray to the Virgin Mary and to Christ. I mean, it's the capacity to incorporate everything and uh, without b making it contradictory inside which I think comes from being a, a polytheistic, animistic culture, which allows these countries to receive all these cultural influences and process them and into, the, into their own heart without losing their, their sense of being different. And the other thing, of course, is I think that the West, by virtue of, of reason, is coming around 
And I think the West itself is poised for change. And uh, maybe soon, I, I hope sooner than later, this consciousness that you see growing everywhere in the West, that things are wrong and something has to be done about them, uh, will make Western culture an ally of these processes rather than an enemy of them. And I, I feel very heartened by this because I think that there's there's been always this ecological tradition in the West. There's this, this kind of this feminine earth ecological tradition it has been uh, submerged it has been repressed by the enlightenment it has been repressed by industrial society but it's now resurfacing and i think that if there's going to be a dialogue between the west or the north and the south i mean all the, these words are so <laughs> absurd to be honest if there's going to be a dialogue it's going to be between those aspects of the cultures because there's a culture of the south which is more Western than the West. I mean, there's, there's a saying in Spanish to say, mas papista que el papa, right? He's more Pope-like than the Pope, which happens when your mind is colonized, that you have to be more white than the whites. And I think that an alliance is going to, to be created between the people in the West who, who are growing into this new consciousness and the people in the South, North, the Third World, <laughs> right? And the people in the Third World who are actually trying to affect these alternatives. Every new order, Marx said, is announced in the old one. And I think that in this order, we can already see something being criando, so we say in Spanish. Something is, 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 is growing here. Something is going to happen. And we can see already the possibility of the new order. And that's what allows us to be here and to have these discussions and to talk like this. David, thank you. Well, thank you. David Tuckschneider, a geographer, and the director of ISBOL, Historia Social Boliviana, an organization interested in understanding and recovering Bolivia's native cultures. He was interviewed in May of 1992 in Orford, Quebec, at a conference called Living with the Earth, organized by the Interculture Institute of Montreal. More from that conference in a moment. My name is Cherno Khan. I am from Senegal and uh, I am the Secretary General of a Federation of Grassroots Organizations village associations in the north of the country. And what is the nature of the land? It is dry first. We are at the Sahel. Sahel meaning in, in Arabian, the gate of the desert. More and more, the main problem we are facing is a problem of uh, the, this desertification which is coming. For, for the villagers uh, in, in, this, uh, in this region, having water, you could have anything else if you have water. Is it a flat land? Very flat land, nothing to do with uh, what I have seen here. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, mountains, uh, completely flat. A flat land and uh, semi-desertic, uh, but very beautiful. Not forest? No more forest. No more forest. I mean, 30 years ago, we had forest. We had 30 years, yes, 40 years ago, we had lions, we had uh, elephant, elephants, and we had uh, crocodiles in the, in the river, and... Uh, hippopotamus in the, in the river, but now less and less we have crocodile in the river because of the, the drought and the desertification. The whole life, animal life, is completely destroyed. 
and uh, it is a very real and very serious problem. Northern Senegal, like the entire swath of the Sahel across northern Africa, is a region in rapid ecological change. This has made the question of development particularly acute for the villages of the region which Cherno Khan represents. He himself comes from the village of Chiloin, 700 kilometers north from the capital Dakar, near Senegal's border with Mauritania. And there, as he said, he has been an activist in his village association. Village associations are a new form of political organization in this region, and committed intellectuals like Khan have played a decisive role in their emergence. They comprise not just the residents of a village, but also those who, for whatever reasons, have had to leave it. For example, many people were forced out by the prolonged drought of the early 70s, when 200,000 people and more than three-quarters of the cattle died in one year alone. Cherno Khan says that they represent a rebirth of solidarity. For us, it's important to recreate the village where we are. And this recreation gives us, culturally, the strength to face all the questions we are facing in, in this city. You take Dakar, Dakar is a monster. Paris is a monster. New York is a monster. But being together, sharing the same language, sharing the same rememberings of the village, give us enough strength in this new situation to work to really realize what we want to realize. But in the same time, you know, the, the whole structure of the village is sometimes duplicated in these urban uh, areas, which is very interesting because that's why this morning I say that in my presentation that don't think that the grassroots organizations are only good. The, there is a problem also of democracy in the village associations. There is also a, a question of power, a question of elite, a question of uh, who is uh, ruling who and so on. So these are the two faces. But it is important for me because the whole idea of solidarity is coming back. Not because we are, for example, in Dakar, far away, 700 kilometers from, our, from the village, we could not communicate with others who are not from the village. We, we could communicate. But it is absolutely important to gather each month, for example, to know exactly what are the news from the village, what are the problems, what are the disasters, what are the good news, who is uh, behaving uh, well or not? What is the, the behavior of the state or the agent of the administration? How to lobby in, in Dakar, for example, for the interest of the village and so on? All these kind of things. What is needed in terms of funds? For me, this is very important. So it is not the, the classical way of urbanization. Simply people leaving the rural areas to the, the town and uh, completely lost, not. They are living there, they are coming to the towns, but in the same time trying to recreate something which is very strong and which could help them to face the whole uh, uh, problems they are facing in the town. Village associations represent a reborn sense of solidarity and political self-assertion at the village level. But Cherno Khan believes that they must also be able to take in wider national and even international perspectives. He calls this paying attention to the macro as well as to the micro. What is really needed is for the grassroots organizations to try to build their own way of development, but 
not to think that they could do it without the macro level. I think something also which is very dangerous is to, to think little or micro and to forget there is a macro. Because there is so many links between the village, the region, and the nation. It is one of maybe the weakness of our associations is uh, to think locally, to act locally. But I think to act locally, but to think globally also is very important. How can you think globally and I mean, still I mean, be where you are? To think globally is to, to have more information on what is going on on the, on the macro level, to urge our parliaments to tell us what is going on, to know what is behind this question of debt, to know about our, our region, different projects which are set on this, uh, on this region, and to see and to compare it to what we are doing at the micro level. Because as a full part of the civil society, we have to know and we have to ask. And it is dangerous because if, if we do not do that, we will be in a situation, we will be always dependent. And what we are doing, for example, in this federation is training on that, what we, will call, what we, are, what we are calling leadership training. For example, to take peasants, delegates, a group of 10 peasants to bring them in the other uh, part of the country, to let them see what is going on there, what are the experiences which are going there, to let them go, for example, to bring them to let them go to Burkina Faso in another country or to, in Mali to see mm -hmm. the experience which are there, to let them open their mind and be able to have a comparison with, with their own situation. One of the main ways in which the macro is currently impinging on the micro in northern Senegal is in the form of the Senegal River Project. This project, which also involves Mali and Mauritania, consists of two large dams, one in the river's delta, one a thousand kilometers upstream. Together, they allow the level and flow of the river to be controlled along its entire length. Chernokan is agnostic on the question of the project's possible benefits, but definite in his condemnation of the way in which the dams were planned and constructed. The problem is, for me, not a matter of having a dam or not, but uh, through which way this dam has been set. With, if it is set, as it is right now, it has been set without a real popular participation on that. It was really a top-down experience, and it is. So the people will use it, but uh, not being in involved at the beginning, at the starting point, they will see it just at the dam of the state. It is not their own dam, so they will have no willingness of, for the protection of this dam or saying that this is our thing, so we're going to face all the, the problems that uh, could uh, occur on that. And, uh, this is, this is the, the problem today, if we link it on the situation of grassroots organizations. Very often, too often, the state is uh, having top-down models or top-down experience. They say for the, the benefit of the people. But for me, you, you can't do for benefit of people without asking the people first what they think about that. And uh, do they really share the idea of having this or this kind of... Uh, of operation or, or, or project, and uh, are they also ready 
ready to really fight against all the negative aspects of, of a project and so, and so on. I mean, this process is absolutely very important if we want to talk about a real democratization in Africa, because the problem of democratization is not a simple question of uh, political parties to have uh, 10 or 20 or uh, 100 political parties. This is just uh, one part of the, the question of democracy. The real question of democracy is really on the basis of popular participation. Mm -hmm. If not, I think we will not have a real democracy. We will have an elite, a new elite who will recuperate the power from the old elite and uh, rule the thing as he, if he wants to, to rule it. Democracy is Tierno Khan's issue, and dialogue the only definite program to which he is willing to commit himself in advance. At the time we met, he was reading Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History, and wondering how these ideas would play in the village. People think that those who are at the micro level should go to the field, cultivate their rice, cultivate their peanuts, have nothing to do with the, the main questions. I think if the big question of the end of history is not for you and me, it's for all the world, including the peasants. So it's a question which should which need also to be discussed by them. And through their own parameters, their own parameters, they will judge this end of the history. It's a matter of democracy, how to put the question and let it be discussed. If people say that, uh, yes, the, the, the development we have seen for 30 years is, uh, is really uh, terrible and not good for us, but in the same time, they None of them say, never say that they don't want television. The whole question is how to debate that. For me, the problem is not yet I am for or against. I have my own position. But the, problem, the, the real problem is to share it with them and to see with people exactly how they uh, judge the development they have faced and how they see their future. And through that, have a conceptualization. But uh, what we are doing now is more something which is completely reversed. We are just standing at the intellectual level, but it is important this conceptualization or this uh, for or against the model of development to be put at the grassroots level and to be discussed at the grassroots level through popular ways uh, of discussions and try to explain to people what, what, what's the meaning of death, what's the meaning of World Bank, what's the meaning of IMF, what is the, the, the meaning of a state, what is the meaning of a parliament? What is the meaning of a... Uh, they know what's about the Gulf War, they know what's about, because they have their radio and they are listening about that. They have their own position on that. The problem is we do not have time to listen to them. We think that it, there is two levels, a, le a manual level of those who are practicing for food and so on, and an intellectual level, which is those who are practicing with uh, ideas. One strategy sometimes proposed by those practicing with ideas for the countries of the South is delinking. The idea is that Africa, for example, should get off the treadmill created by disadvantageous terms of world trade and generate its own internal economies. Cherno Khan knows the argument, but when I proposed this possibility to him, he said again that the question could not be settled abstractly in advance it must first be discussed with those whose livelihoods are at stake. If uh, you put the whole question 
of economy through a real democratic process, you are already delinking because you are putting a new methodology, new methods of understanding, which could come to a new situation. The result of that depends on the way you put the question to the people. But I have no prejudgment on that we should delink because I understood that we, or, or I feel that we should delink. For me today, the, this is, the question is how to come back to the people to raise the right questions to the people, or the, the whole question to the people, and through a real methodology of animation to see what they think about that. And if it is clear in their mind, and the decision taken there, for me, will be uh, more, uh, more interesting than just to decide that type is up for Africa to delink. Cherno Khan also extends this fundamentally open attitude to questions of culture and tradition. Many people at the conference where these programs were recorded talked of the recovery of traditional knowledges or older cultural horizons. Earlier in this hour, David Tuchschneider spoke of how ecologically apt traditional agricultural practices were proving themselves in the Bolivian Andes. Cherno Khan, interestingly, dismissed the whole question of tradition as a red herring. What does it mean? Traditional way means what? That's the problem. I don't know what traditional mean means today. Today we are all living in a traditional and non-traditional way. What is the, a pure traditional way? I do not understand that. I think it's also a mystification which is here. I mean, if you go in a village, the guy have its traditional way in terms of... Uh, behaving vis-a-vis -vis you, but also you, he, he have a sense of modernity in terms of uh, using uh, all the tools of modernity. Using the telephone, using television if, uh, if possible, or using the, the post office, uh, all that are, tra are not traditional. To send a telegram to another village, I mean, using the road, using the, you know. So I can't see what, how, how people could talk in terms of something traditional, and pure, and something modern and pure. We are in a mix of that. I am against of, uh, on, on this uh, thinking that uh, we could return to the tradition. The tradition, it means nothing to, to return to the tradition. What does it mean? Um, we're my boo-boo? Or to be naked in the, in the tree? I mean, I'm ex exaggerating, but uh, I think we are in this double situation. Because I am speaking English, because I am speaking French, I am not Francophone, I am not Anglophone, I am Fulani. But because speaking English and French, I have taken something more in my culture. The problem is, depending on the possibility of these people to swallow this so-called modernity, you could swallow it uh, step by step, depending on your belly. <laughs> and your belly is your culture. If you try to swallow everything, that's what our states have did, tried to did for 30 years. They think that uh, development is uh, the United States, uh, France, they try to swallow everything. So they had indigestions. So the, the whole question is to be well-rooted and enough opened. Let me ask you one final question. Mm -hmm. A funny image of Africa has been created through the development discussion, I think. Mm -hmm. the failure of development in Africa. 
And sometimes I don't know how this <laughs> seems to you, but so, I mean, I have family. I have just only one question: the pillar I, of which development? Yeah, I have family in Nigeria. Yeah, you know, my yeah. sister married a yeah, Yoruba yeah. man. Yeah. And, but I sometimes feel like nobody's living in Africa. When yeah. I hear this kind of talk, yeah. I don't know. Is this? Yeah, that we are. We are true? in a in a. This is not true. People are saying that it's, it's a, a, a lost continent. What does yeah. it mean? Lost continent for whom? Failure of our development. Which development for whom? These are the main questions. If 1% of the people are dying, the 99% are trying to work and to survive. They are trying to survive and keep on surviving. So instead of talking about the, to rediscuss the whole thing, they say that the development has failed. But development for whom? It was not development for people. It was not development for people. Maybe development for the state. But the state is not the people. That's the problem. The state say that they are representation of the people, but they are not representation of the people. It is the, the, the failure of the state, not the failure of the, the people, which is completely different. It might be a little bit arrogant for, if I speak like that, but for me it's important to raise the question to whom you are talking. For me it's very important. Thank you. Thank you also. <laughs> On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to part two of The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, written and presented by David Cayley. Technical production was by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. We would like to thank Kalpana Das and her colleagues at Interculture. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $5 or $20 for the entire series of six programs. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Ecosystem, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. When ordering individual programs, please tell us which date you want, and be prepared to wait up to eight weeks from the conclusion of the series for your transcript. A collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is also available in book form from James Lorimer and Company. The book is called The Age of Ecology, and it's in bookstores across Canada. The executive producer of ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.